All right. Good morning, everybody. Morning. Doing all right? There was a good good morning. Was that you? There was a very good, there was an exceptional good morning from somebody. We're good, Drew? Okay. Uh, we are two weeks post the Sermon on the Mount in our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. And a reminder, the Sermon on the Mount was the area where Jesus lays out his ethical demands of his people, also a vision for humanity. Now, last week we talked about how immediately after giving the Sermon on the Mount, he comes down from the mountain and is, Jesus is confronted by a man with leprosy. Now, the details are important. There is a Jewish man who has leprosy, who by his own community standards is considered unclean. And Jesus walks near to him, touches him, and heals him. Now, one of the things you have to realize is that in the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the biographies of Jesus, you get a lot of little stories that are telling a big story. But oftentimes, the little stories interact with each other so that the details of one story read in light of another story make new meaning rise to the surface. And there's certainly an example of that today. So again, the details are Jesus sees a Jewish man who is unclean by his own community standards. He draws near to him, touches him, and heals him. Immediately after that, this is what occurs. When he, Jesus, had come to Capernaum, a centurion came forward, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Now, some historical details of importance. We have to ask the question, what is a centurion? It's not something we use in our modern vocabulary. A centurion is a Roman commander who is placed over a century, a hundred soldiers, a hundred people. Now, historically, at this time, it would have been roughly 60 to 80 people. The century, the hundred mark is just kind of the estimate. But this is a man, nevertheless, who was in a position of authority with 60 to 80 Roman soldiers underneath him. In order to become a centurion, you would make a pledge and an oath to the Roman emperor and the empire. And it had uh, some some nuance of kind of acknowledging the emperor almost as someone with divine status. Additionally, in order to become a centurion, you had to make a 20-year commitment. It was a 20-year pledge and oath to serve Rome. You needed to be a Roman citizen. Now, the detail that's really important has to do with that 20-year commitment. During that 20-year time period, centurions were not allowed to be married. They couldn't develop families. Rome said, if you're going to serve us, it's got to be undivided. Your loyalty has to be completely to us. And so there's, there's kind of some, some instances where some centurions would try to take up like a non-legal wife, adopt someone almost as a concubine, but it, it got ugly and it didn't work. And for the most part, you couldn't, have, you couldn't be in any long-term relationship with someone else. And so the reason why all of this is important historically is that this servant is the closest thing to family this centurion has. This is is the closest thing. He He has no one else. And he gets moved around the empire from place to place. And so it's very important to this person, as you can see, he comes to Jesus wanting him to be healed. Now immediately, Matthew hits us with a question. And he hits us with a question by extension because he hits the first readers of his gospel with a question. 
And that question is, do you actually want Jesus to heal this person? Now, you might immediately say, oh, yes, of course. Who wouldn't want someone who's suffering to be healed? Now, again, remember the time and place where we're at in the details. This is a Roman centurion. This is someone who works for the empire, the empire that has invaded your land, who oppresses you, who taxes you, who, by the time of the circulation of the Gospel of Matthew, by the end of the first century, as this is going across the empire, some of the first readers would know or would know somebody who knows someone who was brutally tortured and killed by the Roman Empire. I mean, so Rome is, is the bad guys, and they're occupying your homeland. And by the way, your homeland isn't just any other homeland, it's the Holy Land. You believe that God gave it to you. You are the chosen people who were given the promised land. So this is a very difficult question. This is an evil man who's on the bad guys team, who's in our land, who shouldn't be. Now, Luke, in his gospel account, informs us that this guy is kind of like a class act as far as centurion goes. Nevertheless, the first readers of this document would be wrestling with all of these issues. And by extension, it asks you a question. Are there people, individuals, or groups who you actually don't want to receive the healing of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God? You would rather have judgment come their way? Now, at first, you go, no, we're, you know, we're Christians. Of course, we want, we want everyone to be healed and served, to be saved by God. It's like, no, you don't. <laughs> like, you, you, you have to truly examine the depths of depravity of your own heart. You have to look into the dark places because they're there. And there was people in Jesus' day who, wanted G- who would have had Jesus respond with something like this. You are a Gentile dog. You come from filth. Your servant will die, and he is the first fruits of the death that will come to your house because you're next. Now, you would say, I'm certainly not like that. Well, okay, let me give you an example, a lighthearted, simple example, just to show you how complex human beings are with our emotions and how inconsistent we can be. <clears throat> so, uh, it was the Super Bowl last week, right? Last week? All right. Um, We'll pretend it's this week. The passage should have been last week. It would have worked out better. We need to pretend it's this week. Okay. And let's say your team is in the Super Bowl. The team from your childhood, you've loved them since you were yay high. You've always been a fan. And they finally made it to the Super Bowl. <clears throat> and it's the first quarter of the game. And in one of the opening plays, the opposing team's quarterback gets sacked. I mean, gets slammed hard. Falls to the ground. And it's one of those things where everyone else gets up and the dude stays laying there, and the announcer is like, uh-oh, Bob, looks like so-and-so isn't, might be injured. And there's that pause, right, where you don't know, do you just like get the wind knock out of him? Is this a light injury? He's going to get back up. And then 30 seconds later, he stands back up, and everyone what? They clap. They clap. It's like the last modern piece of mod- uh, politeness left over in American culture, where even the opposing team will clap for you. But here's the thing. If you were there, all right, he's safe, you're clapping. But deep down, you're going, dude, if that guy got taken out, we'd win this thing. 
And you know, you, you're so complex in your evil that, you, that you, you go, well, no, I'm not, I'm not that person. I don't want him to have a career-ending injury. I just want like a game-ending injury. It's like some take him out for 24 hours. And you will simultaneously, as you clap, be thinking, man, too bad he didn't get a little more hurt. I'm serious. Now, that is a lighthearted, small example of the complexities of the human heart. But we can say things like, oh, we want people to be healed and receive the healing and grace of God. You go down deep enough and you'll find places where there's hatred and bitterness. And so this story begins to make us ask hard questions. Do we actually want Jesus to heal this person? And fill in him with your Roman centurion, whoever it may be, a group, an individual. It's like that stuff exists. So it goes on. And he said to him, Jesus says to him, I will come and heal you. Now, there's some ambiguity with the language here. The New Testament, the Gospel of Mark, is written in Greek. And in the, orig- the, the original Greek that the New Testament was written in, there wasn't punctuation marks. So like a question mark isn't in the text. What you judge, a que- what you judge whether something's a question or a statement by the context. And that, for the most part, 99% of the time is super easy. Like, if I were to ask a question like, how are you all doing? I don't have to say, how are you all doing? Question mark. Like, you just intuitively know it in your experience with the language. Now, this one, though, is a little difficult because Jesus may be saying, I will come and heal him. Or he may be some, saying something along the lines of, shall I come and heal him? Or should I come to your house? Or you would have me come to your house? Something like that. And he might be doing that because, again, and the Roman centurion would know this, that for Jewish sensibilities, he, a Gentile, is unclean, and it wouldn't be right for Jesus to go over to this unclean man's house. So he could be saying something like, what, you actually expect me to come to your house and, and heal this dude? Is that, is that what you're thinking? Now, some of you might be saying, no way Jesus is, is going to be rude like that, like he just healed the leper type of thing. If you've read the rest of the Gospels, you, you're aware Jesus actually does this. He'll say like, why, why should I go and, and, and heal the, the dogs or the Gentile? Or something? And, and, and what you realize is he, he says these things that at first kind of sound messed up, but what he's doing is, is he's probing and he's mining. He's trying to get to something deeper and draw something up from the surface. And so this might say, I'll come and heal him. Or he might be doing one of these things. Do you expect me as a Jewish man to come into your house? And it's sort of a mystery and it's ambiguous, but what's important is the centurion's response. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Now what happens is remarkable. The centurion acknowledges two things. He He says Jesus is Lord, and then he recognizes that Jesus is someone with authority. And he himself intuitively knows what it's like to have authority. He's got 60 to 80 soldiers underneath him, and he uses them as an example. He says, look, I got people, I say do this and they do it. I say go and they go. I say jump, they say how high. I understand this authority. And I recognize that you, 
my Lord, are a person of authority. Now, I don't believe at this point, the centurion, when he says Jesus is Lord, he, he is not at this point recognizing Jesus as the Son of God, the divine Logos, the God-man, God in the flesh. He doesn't know all of that. All he knows is that clearly this guy has some type of authority and he comes in the name of the God of Israel. I can't deny that. And from that, then he makes the jump that he says, you don't even have to come to my house. All you have to do is say the word. He doesn't have it all figured out. He doesn't know Jesus is the divine son of God, but he he recognizes something that sets this man apart. And he says, Lord, you can just say the word. From a distance, the servant will be healed. That's a powerful type of faith. And that's exactly what Jesus hones in on. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Is heavy, very heavy, but it's subverting our expectations, like everything is flipped. Your expectation is for Jesus to tell the centurion, where I'm going to send you, there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But what does he say? He actually points to the centurion and says, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Which for those who are listening to this, that that would be taken as an insult. This is the bad guy. He's a Gentile. He works for Rome. He serves the, em- the emperor and the empire. He's, he's unclean. He's the bad guy. We are God's people. Look, I, I, every year I go down to temple. I make the annual pilgrimage. I'm in synagogue every week. Nevertheless, Jesus cuts through all of that, cuts to the heart and says, no, no, you don't understand. What this man has, what he is observing, who he is recognizing me to be is fundamentally different than your external works and actions. He's saying, just because you are a part of Israel doesn't make it automatically that you're in the end. In other words, ethnicity by default doesn't make you right with God. You can go to synagogue every week and still have an issue. That's a scary, this is a scary image because there's implications for us today. And then Jesus gives us uh, an image, what we'll call an eschatological image. Eschatology is a big word for the study of ultimate things, in things, last things, sometimes the end times. And the image is of that of a banqueting feast. And this is a common image in the time of Jesus. And it's this picture that in the age to come, in the kingdom of heaven, there will be this great big feast, a celebration and all of God's chosen people will be brought in and be a part of this feast. And this, the feast is like the feast of feast. Like whatever buffet you've ever had that you thought was a taste of heaven is not even close to this feast. And we know this because in the few hundred years before the time of Jesus in the intertestamental period, there's writings describing this feast. And they describe two special items that will be on the menu. And the tradition says that these two very special items 
will be feasted upon. And those two special items are Leviathan and Behemoth. Now, if you're unfamiliar with these two animals, beast creatures, they are mentioned in the Bible, and they're sort of like these mythological creatures. Leviathan is this great sea serpent dragon type creature, and Behemoth is the land version, just this big kind of super boar animal. And there's all kinds of debate about Leviathan and Behemoth. Like, are these just mythical kind of animals, legendary animals? Or is there some historical precedent for these? Maybe they're like dinosaurs and people argue about, well, no, back in the day, there might have been some like secret thing in the ocean and all kinds of debate about it. That's besides the point. The point is this feast is supposed to be so good that God slays these two beasts and puts them on the menu puts them on the table. Now, some of you kind of look at that and you're going, I don't know if that's a super feast, man. I mean, I don't know how delicious, let me, I would love to have some, some of that sea serpent dragon sashimi style served up in the age to come. Looks good to me. And the dude on the right, behemoth, what does that look like? That's a super boar. This is super pig. It's super pork. It's super bacon and sausage. Like that's what food in the age to come is going to be, super bacon. Super sashimi right there, man. So all of that to say, it's not a side point. It's actually central. This is life in the age to come, the great feast. But the startling thing is that he says there's going to be some people at this feast that you wouldn't expect. And there's also going to be some other people that you expect to be there, but will actually be thrown out. And he says, people will come from the east and the west to, to be a part of this banquet. What's interesting is um, already in the Gospel of Matthew, you've seen people from the east and west come to Jesus. So early on, there's people from the east. The Magi, the wise men, they come to the birth of Jesus. And now you have this Roman centurion coming in. Now, I'm not saying Jesus has, it's not as if Jesus has the wise men in his mind right now, but you're already seeing glimpses of people from the east and west come. And it's telling you about the heart and mission of Jesus. That yes, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah come to save the house of Israel, but his mission extends far beyond that. His mission extends to people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now, there's an opposite image. There's the good image, the feast, Leviathan and Behemoth, and a bunch of other goodies. The anti-feast image is that of the darkness being cast out of the feast. And there will be sons of the kingdom. And now Jesus is talking about his own people. There will be some of his own people that will be thrown out into outer darkness. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a very scary image. The Bible uses many different images to describe the final judgment of the wicked. There's fire, there's darkness, there's this weeping and gnashing of teeth, there's sets of images. And oftentimes what we're tempted to do is take all these images and like map them all onto the same location and try to picture how they work together. And so you get into all kinds of like contradictions because you're like, how can there be fire if it's, if it's perfect darkness? Because fire gives off light. And so what you're trying to do is you're trying to harmonize these images that describe the final judgment of the wicked. 
What some people rightfully do is they go, they're just images. You're not supposed to take everyone literal because if everyone is taken literal, then there's, you can't exist in the same location. But there's an also a temptation there where you say, they're just images and metaphors. Calm down. And it's like, no, no. Yes, they're just images, but they're really bad images to make you think that the final judgment of the wicked is someplace that you don't want to find yourself at. It's really, really bad. So yes, they're images, but the images are trying to tell you this is as worse as it gets. And for some who you would expect to be at this banquet, they are actually going to be kicked out. They will be given over to the judgment of the wicked. And that place is a place of darkness and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, the reason why this is so haunting for us today is it says that uh, there were people in that event who went to synagogue weekly, you know, and observed the law, but for whatever reason, their motivations and heart weren't right, and Jesus knew it. And he says, look, just because you were born a certain way or born or have certain ancestry and you go to synagogue weekly doesn't mean you're right with God. Which means for us, you can go to church and be raised Christian. And Jesus knows your heart and your inward desires and you can still not be right with God. Which means you could be at church on a Sunday morning. Maybe you could be at church this Sunday morning and still not be right with God. See, whatever the centurion had, he had this, this, this faith that was fundamentally different than others. And Jesus points to the faith of the centurion. He says, this is the type of faith that I like. This faith I have not found in all of Israel. And so the centurion is set apart by that. <clears throat> it goes on. And to the centurion, Jesus says, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. He just says, done. Now, remember the details from the prior story, right? Jesus sees someone who is a Jewish man with leprosy who is unclean, and he reaches out, touches him, and heals him. Now, there's a Gentile who would have been considered unclean, but Jesus shows his authority from a distance. And we don't know exactly why, but maybe one needed the demonstration of nearness and closeness and intimacy, and one needed a demonstration of power and authority even from a distance. Nevertheless, they, they, they both miracles run parallel to each other. And in this, we see a glimpse of the ultimate mission of Jesus. Again, Jesus is Jewish. He is the Jewish Messiah come to his people, but the claim of Jesus is that his mission extends beyond that so that Gentiles, non-Jewish people, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation may be brought to the table. And that is a very powerful image. It's the place where Jew, Gentile, centurion, and synagogue leader, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation under the banner of Jesus come to the same table and eat together. It's a powerful image. And so we see this, this glimpse of the trajectory of the mission of God. Right now, it's just one centurion, but it's a glimpse. It's a foreshadow, a preview of what's to come. Now, one of the interesting things 
with the centurion is the centurion at this point in the New Testament almost begins to function in a thematic way. There's a theme of the centurion. And you would think the theme would be centurion, bad guy, Roman. Uh, Maybe this one story starts off like there's this one guy who's nice and then all the other ones are horrible. But that's not what the scriptures do. You see a theme in the New Testament wherever they talk about centurions, they're usually presented almost universally in a positive light. Here's just a key, some, some key examples, significant examples, where centurions, the supposed bad guys, are painted in this positive light. So first we get this centurion, and then in Matthew chapter 27, when Jesus is on the cross, there's a centurion who says, truly, this man is the son of God. That's remarkable. The gospel writers saw fit that that would be included in their story. Like, no, make sure to get that in there. Then Cornelius in the book of Acts is the first Gentile convert. He's a centurion. First guy to be a part of the the church who's a Gentile is a centurion. Then there's a centurion who saves Paul from being tortured and flogged. There's a recognition that Paul is a Roman citizen, and one of the centurions goes like, stop, wait a second. Let's not move forward with this. He's a Roman citizen. Then towards the ends of the book of Acts, there's all, Paul's in prison. It's a long story. They're shipwrecked. Um, but eventually they're going to kill all the prisoners, including Paul. And it's a centurion who stands up and says, no, 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 stop. So it's really, it's really strange and bizarre that they, they always include these key examples of centurions. And, and we don't know the exact reasons or all the reasons, but I think at least in part it has to do with this idea that the, per, the, the person you think least likely to become a servant of Jesus at any moment could flip. And it shows you God's grace and mercy that he would reach out even to the centurion. And it reminds us that no one is beyond the reach of the mercy of God. You can't go far enough. He's going to draw people from the east and west. And likewise, it reminds us how we ought to how we ought to live to our so-called enemies. It's like the, the New Testament is filled with the enemy becoming a servant of Jesus, recognizing who he truly is. Now, <clears throat> I want to come back to the issue of faith because this is pretty much the main thing that Jesus focuses on in this passage. Like faith is the centerpiece, the faith of the centurion. And the faith of the centurion demonstrates some aspects and components of faith that are often neglected in our modern understanding of faith. Um, The centurion recognizes that Jesus is in a position of authority. He calls him Lord. Now, again, he may not consider him the second person of the Trinity, but there's this recognition of authority. And in the book of, in the New Testament, you see people are called to confess Jesus as Lord. And Lord implies some things, right? It means that there's an authority there that you should come under. It's not just like, oh, now I intellectually affirm that Jesus exists. No, I'm claiming that he is Lord. And there's authority with that. And in light of that, there's a submission and obedience that comes on my part. Now, when we use the word faith, it's often used in an incredibly weak manner. As mentioned, 
Oftentimes, we just use it to, to basically say, I intellectually affirm the existence of something. So you might ask someone, are you a person of faith? Are you a person of faith? And they go, um, yeah, I consider myself a person of faith. Um, yeah, I believe in God. And, they, and then you might respond, oh, okay. Um, do you go to church? No, I don't, I, don't really, I don't really go to church. Do you like read your Bible? You pray? Is there anything part of your life where you express that faith? And like, I don't really like going to church. I don't like the Bible. Um, but I'll pray sometimes. You know, when life gets really hard, you know, I, I, I chuck some prayers up to the old man in the sky, you know? And you can see that faith really doesn't have much bearing or implication for that person's life, right? They are affirming the existence of a being or a deity that they consult every now and then when times get difficult. You know, it's like I intellectually affirm the existence of it, and it has some small bearings upon my life. Uh, the other way we use faith, and this is really important, is oftentimes we use faith to mean something along the lines of, even though all the evidence says otherwise, I will continue to believe that which is ridiculous. I'll give you an example. Uh, I checked the standings in the NBA last night because I don't really keep up on anything. Uh, and in the Western Conference, the worst team is the Houston Rockets. They're the bottom. They're horrible. In the Eastern Conference, the Orlando Magic, the bottom. Horrible, okay? Um, you might hear someone say, "Who is there any uh, Rockets fans? Houston Rockets fan? Anybody? See, this would be a better illustration if it was 20 years ago. Because 20 years ago, I could just use the Warriors, and there'd be a lot of Warriors fans, and they were horrible. You guys, some of you remember, the Warriors are good now. That, that was like, that would never happen 20 years ago. People don't even know this. Like, they were so bad, I tried out, and I was third string on the Warriors. <laughs> like, that's how bad they were. They're horrible. I just said, hey, look, can't jump, can't rebound, can't pass, but let me stand in the corner, I could hit threes. I got a contract. Um, so, but today it's the Rockets. They're horrible. Okay, so let's say you're a big Houston Rockets fan. You say, you know what? Yeah, I know, I know that things don't look good, um, but you know what? I have faith that the Rockets are going to make the playoffs. I have, you know, I know it's not looking good, but man, I got some faith they're going to make the playoffs. And what does that mean? It means that despite the overwhelming evidence that that team is horrible, you, against the evidence, will have faith that they'll be good. So you see how this works. Faith is believing in something that's ridiculous. Or better yet, the, the worse the team is, the more faith you have to have that they're going to make the playoffs. In other words, greater is the faith who believes in more and more ridiculous things. Oh man, you gotta really have faith in the Rockets if you think they're gonna turn around at this point. So faith becomes believing in ridiculous things that aren't likely to happen. And by the way, this is the modern definition of faith applied to God. Yeah, like we all know now God's probably not real. And even if he is, he doesn't have any kind of interaction on earth. There's, there's nothing real, like there's no miracles. He's, if he's real, he's off there. We, he's probably not there, but you know what? I'm glad you're a person of faith. 
I'm glad it kind of works for you. I'm glad that despite all the evidence that says God isn't real, you still believe. Great is your faith. You know, that's how it's used. But that's not faith in the biblical sense. That's not faith at all. That's not how the Bible uses the word faith. Now, the other issue with the modern understanding of faith has to do with um, our actual vocabulary. So in Greek, the language the New Testament was written in, faith has a noun and a verb. The noun is pistis and the verb is pistuo. Pistis noun verb pistuo. So you have something like pistis translates to faith, but when it takes a verb form in English, we don't have faithing right? In Greek, the words are the same. Pistis, pistio, it takes upon a verb form. We don't have faithing. That doesn't exist in our vocabulary. So oftentimes, we'll say something along the lines of having faith, or oftentimes, pistio, the verb form is translated believing. Believe. Believing, I-N-G type of thing. But believing, the nuances are different than the biblical word pistio and pistis. And we see some of the nuance highlighted by Jesus in the centurion's faith. Because what does the centurion recognize? Jesus is an authority. And if he's an authority, there's a level of submission that comes underneath him. One of the the few modern examples that sort of communicates um, the idea of the two Greek words takes place in a marriage ceremony. So when two people get married, they say vows to each other, right? You say vows and you pledge faithfulness to one, one another. Now, you don't, when you say, like, I pledge my faithfulness, you are not saying, uh, I will promise to continue to intellectually acknowledge your existence. <laughs> you are not saying, like, it, I acknowledge that in this wedding ceremony, you are actually a real person standing in front of me. It's not merely intellectual affirmation of the existence of said being, right? It's more than that. You give vows, and what do you do? You are entrusting yourself to that person, and you are also pledging your faithfulness to that person. And in that pledge, you are not just saying, um, I entrust myself to you today. You pledge faithfulness, ongoing faithfulness. You are pistuo, you are faithing with that person in good times and bad times. That's how it works. And so, and you even get this like with the celebration of an anniversary. On an anniversary, what are you doing? You are looking back at an initial vow and promise and you are reaffirming it. You are pledging your allegiance yet again. And it's not as if something new comes into being, you're re-pledging what was already established. And so the missing component in the modern culture, in my mind, to how we use the word faith is this issue of allegiance and loyalty. When the centurion has faith, he gets what that is. He knows what authority is. He knows what it is to me to be in charge of people. When a Christian confesses Jesus as Lord, we aren't just confessing the existence of his being. We presuppose that. But when we say you are Lord, we're saying you are the authority in my life. I come under you and I pledge my allegiance to you. Now make no mistake about it, we are saved by grace. There's nothing you could do to be saved. It is the free gift of God. But 
as the scriptures command, you confess Jesus as Lord and embedded into that confession of his lordship is this idea of I'm coming underneath you. I am giving my allegiance to you. One of the great problems in the modern church is that you have a lot of people who say they are Christian, but they have no allegiance to King Jesus. Other things they have greater allegiance to. And it's not wrong to have other allegiances. You just have to understand as a Christian, your chief allegiance is to King Jesus. And by the way, when your chief allegiance is to King Jesus, you will pledge better allegiance to all the other things. You will honor your marriage more when Jesus is your chief. He's at the top of the triangle. He's, he's, he's it. First and foremost, I'm aligned and I pledge my allegiance to Jesus. Therefore, I'm not only pledging my allegiance, say, in my marriage, but out of my allegiance to Jesus, I will do everything I can in this other sphere. So when we say faith, we have to recognize it's more than just affirming the reality of God. We entrust ourselves to him. We say, I give you my life, Lord. When you say go, I go. When you send me this way, I get sent that way. When you say jump, I say how high. And Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount has just laid out his ethical demands of his followers. And that's why we strive to obey them. Not in order to earn anything, but because we've been given grace and saved. And subsequent to that, we've pledged our allegiance to this king. And we know him as the good and wise king who it's good to follow and obey. Now, we're going to transition into communion. And this is where communion and this whole idea of faith really connect. Communion is almost like a weekly anniversary, if you will. Because what do we do? We remember what Christ did for us. We remember his establishment of the new covenant. We remember the new covenant, that that is the marriage of the groom and his bride, the church. And so it's this sort of weekly anniversary of remembrance and it's a weekly re-pledging of our allegiance just like on an anniversary you remember vows when we take communion we remember we confess jesus as lord we remember that we were his enemies and he died for us and showed us grace and mercy and this is why coming on every every sunday is so important this is why singing to jesus Every Sunday is important. Hearing his word, taking communion, all of those things remind us of our proper place in the world, who we belong to, who is our king. When we sing, we are declaring that Jesus is king and we are ingraining it through melody and song into our hearts and minds. Right before the sermon, we, we sang that Jesus is a lion and a lamb. You need to hear that often. You need that. You need to hear his scripture, his word, and you need to take communion where you take time in your week set apart to remember what he's done for you and you re-pledge your allegiance. I'm committed to you, Lord. Help me to be loyal. I've pledged faithfulness. I need your spirit to help me to continue to be faithful. And the other thing, the last thing this reminds us of 
which is another message from the centurion, is, centurion is that the mercy of God is not constrained. He'll save the centurion. He'll save that person. Which means he can save people like us. Because you look at the centurion, you go, that's a, a, a bad guy on the wrong team, a soldier of the empire. But Christ died for us when we were his enemies. We were soldiers on the bad guy's team. We were soldiers working with the enemy. We were in the domain of darkness, according to Ephesians. But in the midst of that, Christ saw fit to die for his enemy and bring all of us near to him and would no longer call us enemy, no longer just call us something friend, but would call us sons and daughters, family members in the household of God, a household of God that's made up of Jew and Gentile, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And we in the present look forward to the ultimate meal where we'll celebrate in the kingdom and see all the different people that God has shown mercy to. And so communion is this weekly repledging and anniversary and remembrance. Let's stand as we take it. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he takes bread and he says, this is my body. And we remember that the body of Christ was broken on our behalf, that he would be able to draw us near and call us his own. Jesus also takes the cup and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. And it's become a tradition here uh, that when we talk about this, we talk about what Paul said about it. And Paul says that as long as you take this, you are proclaiming the death and resurrection of Jesus till he returns. So as you take this, without any words, we are all collectively and as individuals proclaiming the life, death, resurrection, and future return of Jesus. And that's why it's a repledging. When you take this, you are proclaiming yet again, Christ will come. We repledge our allegiance to our King, knowing He will return. And so, Lord, help us to be loyal and to be faithful to the very end. We declare your life, death, resurrection, and we declare you will return again. Let's take. So, Father, in this closing time, we pray that your son Jesus would be honored. He is the, has the name above all names. He is the highest authority. He is our king, and we pledge our allegiance to him. We ask that you would give us your spirit to empower us to be faithful, to be loyal, for we are prone to wander. We would run the other way. But you've not only given us grace to save us, but you've been giving us the grace to continue to serve you and be faithful. So may your son be honored in this closing time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.